You're listening to Just, stories about the people working to build thriving communities rooted in justice. I'm Jess Averhart, co-founder of Black Wall Street Homecoming. And I'm Rob Shields, executive director of the ReCity Network. All right, look, so here's why we're here. We're here to get proximate. We're here to listen. We're here to process. And we're here to help you process. But here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to be preachy because we don't have all the answers. And we will never make you feel like an outsider. Keeping with the theme of sharing, we always want to acknowledge the whole person. And that starts with our personal Personal check-in. Let's do it. All right. And we are back. Here we are. Season two episode. I don't know what, but we are in season two. And it is our personal check-in. And I'm so glad to see your face on this Zoom. Likewise. likewise. All is right with the world. How are you and the family? Let's check in. It's been seven days. Yeah, this, thank you you for asking. I I always appreciate the fact that we do this because it just helps bring up these conversations and just feel, just establish that, you know, that relational groundwork for for these conversations. But I'm, I'm doing okay. The family's doing well. Loving the colder weather. Had a really good weekend spent with the family this weekend, which is great. Kids being outside more because of the weather, but also spent a little bit of time inside watching this documentary, The Social Dilemma. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I watched the preview on Netflix like three or four times and was like, oh, okay. So I, I haven't seen it yet, but I tagged it as must, you know, like whatever in your roster. Did it blow your mind? It looked like mind, it, I was going to have to. Yes. Yeah, get grounded. So I'm not even me. really all that into social media. I'm not all that active. And still, I was like, and maybe that means I'm their target, someone who is ready to believe all of the things that they're saying, right? And I'm so I'm just like, I literally texted a friend halfway through. I haven't even finished and I've already turned off all my notifications on my phone, deleted email off my phone, like just completely embracing this hook, line, and sinker. So, and I just honestly, honestly, this is irrelevant too to the Just Podcast because the, I mean we're we're joking about this, but like the themes they hit on, I would almost say this is a worthy referral for our listeners to say that it it builds a really strong case into the how we got here and the tribalism that mm. we're seeing played out in our society and just what that's doing, you know, to really keep us apart and all the damage that comes with that that type of polarization that really you know our podcast seeks to try to address right and, mm-hmm. and to. Oh, I bet. I bet you found a lot of correlation between the data manipulation and the tribal Mm -hmm. stuff around and how it impacts justice. What was the one thing that you were just like, holy smoke? For me, because I'm not on social media, I think that maybe people are already attuned to this and I'm not. Right. But this idea that all these apps that we use, right, that they're free, they're free to us because they're not the product. If they're free to you, you are the product. That's right. Just this idea of the trends of everything that is going up in all the wrong ways of you know, more political polarization, more ideological polarization than ever before. You know, just the teen suicide rates going up when social media was introduced. Like, I can't pick just one, but just it just it paints this really compelling narrative. And even just to hear about all it's all all these inventors of this these programs describing how they created these things and they're encouraging you not to use them. And they're encouraging and they're saying, I don't let my kids do this mm. because this is how damaging it is. And look what we've become. Like, and look at what, look what they're being used for. And so it is sobering, but I think, I think necessary. I think it's, it's a must watch for anyone that is passionate about justice and justice reform, which is a, a theme of today's interview and, and episode, yeah. because we have to understand the roots of what's going on, you know, yeah. and what's behind 
the curtain if we're really going to be able to move toward meaningful change. And I think that means knowing what's going on with how, I mean, the podcast world is a part of this whole animal. It's not that it doesn't function the exact same way, but like it's still a part. Participates. Of it participates in it. The digital the platforms. Media. Yeah. What does it mean to use it, but also not be, you know, let it be a tool for, for harm or injustice. Right. And so it's, mm. it begs a lot of questions that I don't have enough answers to right now, but I'll, I'll pause there and say, just go watch it. And yeah, I would thank I would. you for not doing a spoiler for me since I haven't seen it. I'm not yeah. smart enough to spoil it because what they talk about is like really technologically, you know, they dumb it down to someone like me, which I appreciate, but I, I don't think I could, I'm not smart enough to even be able to articulate a spoil. <laughs> Got it. Good. That's good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. You know, I'm doing great. I am also just delighted about the weather change. I love fall. It gives me so much life and I'm really grateful to be in some cooler weather. I was going to check in on some health stuff that I didn't make it to 75 days of my 75 hard challenge. I only made it to day 24. So I have now replaced that challenge with a new challenge, which was introduced to me by, oh my gosh, like all of my friends are doing this. In fact, I'm going to ask my guest and see. I'm sure she she's definitely heard about this and may be doing this as well. But all of my friends are eating sea moss every single day now. Dr. Sea moss. You said sea moss. Moss of the sea. Moss of the sea. Like yeah. Sam is the tuna of the sea, like eating <laughs> sea moss. Let me tell you moss something. Like, well, because when your friends are telling you, oh my gosh, I have this great energy now and I have focus and it's, I have this renewed, all these great benefits and it's great vitamins and all this stuff. And I was like, I'm in like where I get me some of this sea moss. Right. <laughs> so I have a friend who sells it and she brought some over to me. And it was in a Tupperware jar, like in a Tupperware container. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is not what I expected. I thought it was going to be like powder, which apparently does come in powder now, but I had to suffer through this version of it. And so I open it up and it's basically, Rob, it's just basically like the consistency of snot. Oh, You know what I mean? Like I'm trying to think of anything else that I could compare it to without being vulgar, but I mean, it's just like, like the, or that people could recognize. And it's sea snot, basically. So you're supposed to eat it t- two tablespoons a day to get all these great benefits. And I, I just had, I have the, have had the hardest time. So my one friend was like, just soldier, you just got to be a soldier girl and just take the spoonful and just eat it. And I was like, okay. And all my other friends are like, go ahead and put in smoothies and stuff. So one day I tried the second day I tried to just gut it down and my, all of my gag reflexes, like it took everything I had. But I was like, I'm going to win this because I am I compete with myself on everything. So I was able to get it down. And since then, I now put it in my smoothies. And it's only been day four. So I haven't seen these miraculous benefits, but I'm waiting. Because- I mean, give it time. Give it time. Are you, you know, previously, right? Our listeners know this. You were doing the 75 hard stuff, right? Is it, yeah. you set a deadline or are you embracing sea moss or sea snot as a lifestyle? Is this like... <laughs> I mean, if I, if it's going to give me that, the juice that I need and apparently, so this is based on Dr. Sabi's diet, who is a renowned doctor who had a practice in Honduras, no longer with us, but just a very, has a very provocative way of looking at health and thinks that, and believes that you can cure all things through nutrition and food, including AIDS and cancers and all this stuff. And so he's renowned, frankly. And so this is part of his regimen and he's his own story, his own testimony or whatever. And so I guess what we'll do is just see, you know, I'm not known 
said dot something forever, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, we'll I'm so goes. glad I asked that question. We didn't skip this section today. Like, wow. He's not. Look, look what we would have missed. The world would have been deprived of not of the sea. <laughs> I mean, it's supposed to be a miracle. So we'll see what happens. I will check back in with the audience, with okay. our listeners next okay. time about this. But let's get on to. Yeah, we... probably, probably best. Okay. So first of all, let's make sure our guest is with us. Brittany, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Oh, there she is. Okay, so Brittany probably was listening. I don't know. Did you hear some of the things we were just talking about? I, I talked the part about the sea moss, and it's so interesting because a lot of my friends are on the sea moss train. You called it, yeah, Jesse. That's right. So you haven't tried it yet. I haven't tried it yet, but they've been on the sea moss and elderberry. Oh yeah, elderberry juice or whatever. Yeah, that's yeah, supposed so to be. A friend of mine uh, brought me some organic like elderberry eels, I guess. So I'm going to try them. I hadn't tried them yet, but I'm going to. Okay. Yeah. See, we all, I mean, it's uh, something new, right? It's, this could be the miracle that we've all, (laughs) we've all been waiting for to get our diet and our life, right? I'll I'll be interested to see what you think about that elderberry stuff. And if you do see moss, do the pill form or get the, the snotty kind of form. But if you do, you put it in smoothies. you You can't eat it straight. Anyways. That's good enough. That's our tip. Tip for the day. We'll put Brittany that in. is actually an attorney, not to spoil your part of the intro there, but Brittany's an attorney. So I think this is where we insert like medical disclaimer. Oh, right. right. That's right. You're, you're basically, <laughs> you're saying a lot of things, Jess. And I think we probably need to say, neither of us are doctors. Yes. Don't go, you know. Yeah, yeah. It'll be in the show notes, but don't hold us liable. Liable. Don't, please don't see <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Well, Brittany, we are so glad that you are with us today. I've been um, really looking forward to this. I I am so compelled by your story. And so I'm going to introduce you just very quickly to our listeners. And we're going to jump right into how you move, what you've accomplished, and your story and how you think about justice in the criminal system, criminal reform specifically, and how that correlates to your story. So to our audience, I want to introduce you to Brittany Barnett who is an award-winning attorney and entrepreneur and author, right? She focuses on social impact investing um, and and has really got her mind set on shaping and changing the way we think about criminal justice and transforming that system. She has won the freedom for numerous clients serving life sentences on federal drug offenses, And that parallels some of her history and background, her own story, and those in her life that she cared deeply about and how this sort of like informed the trajectory of what she does and how she she spends her days and navigates her days on our behalf, frankly, on behalf of our loved ones and family. First of all, thank you, Brittany, for the work and how you've chosen to live your life. I think that is commendable. Thank you. And girl, I'm not going to go into your actual story because I think that's something that I would love for you to share. You know, as we go into this interview, I want you to talk to us about that. And maybe we'll just jump into it now. I like to do a little bit of a check-in. Brittany is with us today by way of Dallas, Texas. So she's not in the Durham, North Carolina area. She's in Dallas. We were talking a little bit earlier about the weather, but like, how are you in this COVID environment? Let's just quickly set our minds and our intentions on you and how you're doing. And then I'll ask the first question. So today, Brittany, how you doing? How you feeling? Yeah, I'm feeling good. You know, this summer has just been rough. Yeah. The pandemic, just current social justice events. I actually had COVID in July. So it's just been a lot happening. I feel really good today. And, you know, I'm excited that conversations like this are happening, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're doing well, that you're feeling well. You, you look and sound great. So I'm glad that, that you were able to come out of that COVID experience in the way that you did. So that's good. And I want to just acknowledge that because that could be hard and traumatic, right? To sort of hear the headlines and then be a part of that. My own family went through it as well. So I get it. And thank you for saying that. I mean, it is an interesting space to be in when the whole world is now feel like laser focused on issues or, or topics of justice. And so I'm glad that we have folks like you that are willing to take some risks and have conversations like this and educate our audience. So again, thank you for being here. So let's just jump in. Tell us your story and what led you to this work that you're doing now. So I grew up in rural East Texas, a small town with like 1,200 people. You know, my mom, stepdad, younger sister. And we had, I had a pretty normal upbringing, you know, especially from the outside looking in. We were big on sports and my mom was a nurse. From the outside looking in, I say, because on the inside, my mom was struggling with a severe drug addiction. And that just impacted, you know, our whole lives to the extent to where it ultimately led to her going to prison. Mm-hmm. And I was a young adult. By the time she'd gone to prison, but we had dealt with her addiction all through my childhood. And quite frankly, it was that experience where I realized that this system is is flawed because my mom needed treatment, yeah. you know, not punishment. And so I had a really, I mean, incredibly close-knit family. I mean, just, I always talk about, and I try to be intentional about it in the book just to show my love for the South. And you know, just the love of family was incredible for me. Extended family, the love for my mom, you know, even though she was battling this this strong addiction. And just going through these situations with my mom and just being really proximate, you know, to the systemic impact of the war on drugs. And when I say really proximate, I mean, you know, firsthand yep. experience. And it just started really you know, opening my eyes in a way that I don't think I realized at the time to just this massive oppressive system. Yeah. So I buried the lead here. You just mentioned your book. And so I want to, for the listeners early on and not just in the show notes, we want to talk about the title of your book. And this is what inspired it, right? Is your your personal story and your proximity to your mother's situation being incarcerated. You wrote a book entitled A Knock at Midnight, A Story of Hope, Justice, and Freedom. And I read a portion of your book and I'm really looking forward to finishing it. And you're a beautiful writer. Thank you. Yeah, you bring it to life with such detail. I was leaning in as I was listening or not listening, but reading the words as you were just and relating to it a little bit. I mean, these listeners can't see, but I've got, you know, my hair is all over the place. And when you're talking about your mom trying to comb through your hair, right? And you're <laughs> handing her the barrettes and it's just so beautiful. And I think that everybody, when they're reading it, can imagine themselves in that relationship, right? Or if they didn't have that type of relationship, they they might have wanted that sort of like that relationship that you had with your mom in that moment. And so well done, well done with your authorship and also just with what and how you're portraying this work. So is there anything else you want to share with us about what moved you into that space to write that book and also just to pursue an entire career around this work as an attorney, right? As an award-winning young attorney in the country and at the same time trying to seek justice for those who are unjustly incarcerated or have sentence terms that are just egregious, frankly. Yeah, you know, I 
as cliche as it may sound, Jess, I always wanted to be a lawyer. Okay. So as far back as probably kindergarten. Okay. That's great. For some reason, though, the older I got, the further becoming a lawyer seemed out of my reach almost. And as I look back in hindsight, you know, I think that that's because there were no lawyers in my small rural Texas community and there definitely weren't any black women lawyers, Yeah, you know? And so the closest person that I knew or felt that I knew that was a lawyer that looked like me was Claire Hustable mm-hmm. from the Cosby show, you know? And so I just had dreams of being this lawyer in power suits, you know, and, and doing what Claire Huxtable did, you know, but as I got older, like I said, that dream just started to seem unattainable for me. And there was really no logical explanation for it. I was always, you know, good grades. I graduated high school early. It was a lack of representation, I truly feel. And so I went and got degrees in accounting and became a certified public accountant. And one of my mentors, I was borrowing his books to study for the state accounting exam. And I told him, you know, I'm thinking about going to law school, really just to see what he would say. And he said, oh, you should go. I'm starting law school in the fall. And I remember thinking, being happy for him on the one side, but on the other side, thinking, wait a minute, if he can go to law school, you know, I know I can go to law school. So that's what really changed the trajectory for me to go to law school. But I was set. I was going to be a corporate lawyer. I wanted to leverage my accounting experience and climb the corporate ladder. It just blazed a trail, you know, for other Black women and girls and got to law school and took a critical race theory course. And that course changed my life forever. In that course, I came across the case of Sharonda Jones, who was serving a life sentence for a drug offense. And in the course, I wrote my paper about this disparity in sentencing between powder cocaine and crack cocaine and how it was disproportionately impacting people of color. But I wanted more than just statistics and legalese in my paper. I wanted to humanize it. I wanted the heartbeat, you know. And I had a childhood friend that I'd grown up with who was serving life for drugs. And I wanted to talk about his case in the paper. But I wanted to highlight a woman as well. And so that course really brought me even more approximate, you know, on top of the situation with my mom. But, you know, I was still on this track to be a corporate lawyer. I went, graduated law school, became a corporate lawyer, you know, job of my dreams. And I work on cases pro bono. Yeah. Thank God for you. Thank you. Yeah, seriously. Thank you. Brittany, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in here because I think that, uh, you know, proximity is a, is a word that really is a theme of so many of our episodes and how, how important that is to get proximate. And I think you, you're coming from several different layers of proximity in your story. But I, I'd love for you to just expand a little bit because you, you really center much of, of your book on Sharonda's story, almost akin to, you know, for those of our listeners who, who read Just Mercy, how Ryan Stevenson builds around the life of Walter McMillan to really take stats and make them humanized, right? Because we can hear these numbers, we can hear these figures. And I think for those, feel free to incorporate the ones on the disparities between crack cocaine and fat, because I think we don't want to make any assumptions that people even are aware. Stats matter, right? But the storytelling that you do in this book is what stays with people um, and really makes the stats stick. And so would you mind just telling us, obviously people are going to get the whole thing with the book, but just a little bit more about Sharonda Jones's story, its implications for the criminal justice system, and and just the impact that getting proximate to her story has had on your story. Yeah, absolutely. So 
Sharonda Jones's case, among many others, is a true indictment of this country's criminal justice system. We have to see beyond the numbers and see the heartbeats. But to start with the numbers and to keep it general, in 1986, the United States Congress passed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act. And this act implemented a 100 to 1 ratio in sentencing between powder cocaine and crack cocaine, which means, Rob, that you could have 500 grams of powder cocaine. I could have five grams of crack cocaine, and we would receive the same sentence in prison. The implication of that in real life is that more affluent, if you will, white people were in the powder cocaine realm at the time. And crack cocaine, quite frankly, was primarily targeted and used in Black communities. And so this ratio, as I was in that law school course, critical race theory, there was no logical explanation for it. This 100 to 1 ratio was so arbitrary. There was no legislative history behind it. The law passed incredibly fast. There was no part of my consciousness that could make sense of it, you know? And then I did more research and saw that over the years, the United States Sentencing Commission came out and said, well, crack cocaine and powder cocaine are two forms of the same drug. You can't even have crack without powder. And so they, there were more research and studies on how this 100 to 1 ratio made no sense. And so Sharonda Jones's case helped really bring a heartbeat to that 100 to 1 number. And this is how I found her case. It's kind of funny, but I kid you not. I wanted a woman to talk about in my paper. And I literally did a Google search one night in the law library at Southern Methodist Law Center here in Dallas, where I went to law school. And Sharonda Jones's case pulled up. And I listened to her story and I saw so much of myself in her. She was a black woman from the rural South. You know, it was like a mirror reflection of myself. And Sharonda Jones was an entrepreneur. She had her own restaurant, hair salon. She left an eight-year-old daughter behind. And she was involved in some form of the drug trade. That part, I do not gloss over. My clients do not gloss over. Her role was basically being a drug mule between a drug supplier in Houston and a couple selling crack in Dallas. And she made a few trips with powder cocaine uh, up and down Interstate 45 from Dallas to Houston and was caught up in this conspiracy. And Sharonda Jones had no idea what it meant to be in trouble. She had never even received a traffic ticket before. And she decided to utilize her constitutional right to go to trial. Everyone else took plea deals. She didn't even understand what conspiracy meant. And what I learned and what was so perplexing to me as I researched this was conspiracy is just a meeting of the minds in federal law. It's an agreement between two or more people to traffic drugs. Mm. It's a federal crime. You know, there's not much else needed. And so as I researched her case, you know, I saw there were no drug buys. There was no surveillance. There were no actual drugs. There was no large sums of money. And I'm just like, how did this happen? Mm. And then I got to her trial and I saw how the drug supplier testified against her at her trial. I saw how the couple in Dallas who was selling drugs testified against her. I mean, people who were much more culpable on the situation, you know, than Honda, they were testifying against her at her trial and got lesser sentences, quite frankly. They, none of them served more than 10 years in prison. And so when I looked into her case more to bring home the 100 to 1 ratio, she... And the co-conspirators testified she was trafficking 
powder cocaine for them. However, the judge found that Sharonda should have known that it was being cooked in a crack and she was sentenced under the harsher crack penalties. Wow. Remember the 100 to 1? Yeah. Remember the 500 grams of cocaine is the same amount of time as five grams of crack. And I'm just thinking, how does this happen? How does this happen? And so I reached out to Sharonda. By this time, she was serving her 10th year in prison. And I sent her a card, I think, because I remember when my mom was in prison, just how important mail was. You know, I told her I was in my second year of law school and that I wanted to help her with her case. You know, and she sent me like this cool letter back, kind of nonchalant, you know, um, wishing me well with my studies. But it was almost as if she had just been promised so much and let down so much. And so she was in Fort Worth prison, uh, federal prison, which isn't too far from me. So I would go visit her. And I mean, we were just like family. We became family and we went on this long journey to free her in every avenue I would take. And mind you, I'm like literally moving billion dollar deals by day and working on her case and a couple of others at night. And just thinking about being a corporate lawyer and how we're spending billions of dollars buying and selling companies. I did mergers and acquisitions and how I just felt like my thumbprint every day was touching global power. You know, mm-hmm. we could transform companies overnight and I couldn't do anything to, to get Sharonda out of prison. Mm-hmm. And so just that powerlessness and we kept fighting in every avenue I would take to try to get her out. You know, it was, oh, this law changed, but it's not retroactive. So I'm like, how in the hell is the law not retroactive? Like if it was wrong today, it's wrong. It was wrong yesterday. Right. That's how our system is, you know? And so... Ultimately, I came to realize that the only way to get Sharonda free was going to be through clemency from the president of the United States of America. And clemency is a power that's given to the president through the Constitution. It's a sole executive power. And at the time, President Barack Obama was in office and I filed her petition. I will never forget November the 8th, 2013. And it took two years. But... Blessedly, in December 2015, by the gracious and generous mercy of President Barack Obama, Sharonda Jones's life sentence was commuted to time served. And so it's just astonishing even to say today, you know, five years later, just how with the stroke of his pen, President Obama saved her life. You know, and it was a remarkable journey for us. She ended up serving 16 years and nine months. Again, first time conviction, felony or otherwise. She never seen the inside of a jail before. Mm. And one thing that I learned from this experience through just the human element of it was life. She was serving life. And I don't think a lot of people realize that life in federal prison means just that there's no parole. So Sharonda Jones was serving the same amount of time as the Unabomber. And I just really felt that, you know, I felt such a kinship to her. I felt the life sentence. You know, I felt, I saw how life sentence suffocates mass potential, you know, and it truly is the second most severe penalty permitted by law in America. And we should really think about as a country how we're handing that out. Mm, so good. I, I'm feeling the weight of Sharonda's story that you're able to tell on her behalf. I'm feeling the weight of that. I'm also feeling the weight of all the people that she loved and that were in her space and like the sentence that they had to take, right? As soon as she was in prison, how that changes 
structures within families and it puts an additional stress and strain on an emotional strain on families. It's toxic isn't the word that I was looking for, but it is toxic, right? It is. And and thinking about those additional layers when we have a system that needs reform, which I feel is a lightweight word here, mm. that is deeply rooted in racism and needs that sort of focus and attention to be reformed. If when you think about me, you're so close to this work. When you think about the criminal justice system, if you could in one fell swoop change one thing about the system, what would be one thing that you're like, if I could do this right now, this is the very first thing and the most important thing that I would change? Oh, wow. That's a great question. And a hard one because there's so much that needs changing. But if it was just like right now, gut feeling. Right now, yeah. To get retroactivity mm. in these laws that we're changing. Mm. I think criminal justice reform is such a hot topic. It's popular now. It's fashionable. But what amazes me is how little people really know about how the system works. Right. You know, we see these talented reforms, and I'm using air quotes, and we think, okay, things are changing. You know, progress is being made. But there's no progress when you're not making laws retroactive. When you're leaving people to die in prison today under yesterday's drug laws, you know, and I love what you said about just reform. Just, I am so allergic to the word reform because I feel when you're reforming something, you're just tinkering with the broken system. You know, we need true transformation. We have to truly reimagine what justice looks like in this country. Like, do we want justice system? And do we want, not just do we want it, do we want to pay for a justice system that incarcerates people like Sharonda Jones in prison for the rest of their natural lives. You know, this country spends over $80 billion a year on incarceration, $80 billion. Mm. And I truly feel we, we need transformation in, in this country. And I, you know, the word reform and transform, they're not synonymous. Mm. Wow, that's great. Yeah, I resonate with so much of the things that you're saying of, we need to reimagine what justice looks like in this country. And it does go deep. And I think you're, you're fighting to change such deeply rooted injustice. I mean, th- those roots run so deep. And we've talked about that in, in previous episodes. That, that's another theme that, you know, Jess and I talked about in the very first episode of, of our first season last year was, you know, this idea of this 400-year-old tree that has been growing in our, in our society. And, we ha- and it's got a lot of deep roots they're interconnected. That change to be able to uproot that type of injustice does not happen overnight. And I think things you're touching on are exhibit A. So Brittany, with that being said, knowing and seeing clearly that that is, that is not going to happen at the snap of a finger because that magic wand from the last question doesn't exist. What gives you hope in these things that these things can be healed, fixed, that they can be made right? I guess what I'm asking is what is your why that fuels you to keep going, knowing that this isn't going to be fixed by tomorrow? Well, I can honestly say that hope is the fuel that I run on. And that is deposited into me through my clients, through the people that we represent. I'm co-founder of the Buried Alive Project, a nonprofit that provides free legal representation for people serving life in prison for drugs and their survivorship fuels my hope, you know, to be able to wake up daily facing a reality that would be unbearable for many. It just takes a special type of grace and dignity to carry an excessive sentence like that. And they give me so much hope and truly fuel me to keep going. My family, of course, and also just 
bringing it to the current moment that we're in yeah. and the, the uprising that we see, you know, that gives me hope. You know, the protests that we see, the conversations that we're having, you know, horrific trauma sparked this movement that we're in with the murder that we witnessed of George Floyd. And, you know, keeping in mind, he was on his way into the criminal justice system. He was being arrested, you know, and that is where it was beginning, you know. But I think we're not the total sum of our pain. And so it gives me joy, you know, to to bear witness to the power of the people that I'm seeing right now. And, you know, as much of injustice as I talk about in the book, you know, it's all fueled by hope. And, and hope to change and, and wanting to be sure that the human element is front and center. Cause I think the human element is often ignored, but it's necessary and critical to drive impactful change. Yes. Well, and you've brought this around several times during our brief conversation to move away from just thinking about numbers and data and really checking in on heartbeat. Right. Mm-hmm. And you just said human element. That's the goal of this podcast really is to is to inform, but it's to tell stories. It's to bring it to life, right? And take it off the 30-second headline on CNN or the quick whatever you see on your phone while you're scrolling. But like to bring the stuff to life is where I believe that's where that hope and change exists. Like yeah. that's the real stuff. That's when you get motivated to make a call, when you get motivated to do something, when you get motivated to say something that you would normally say, it lives in the power of stories. And so what you've done through this book, A Knock at Midnight, has been to bring that story to life, right? Mm-hmm. And and not just let it live in statistics. And so that's why it's so powerful. That's why it's such a gift and a contribution for our listeners who are going to get this book and read it and be able to be more informed of it, be able to tell the story of Sharonda. That's the story that will be told, which is so powerful. So as we think about kind of closing this discussion, I feel like there's just so many other things that we could just talk about here. But one thing I do want to do, and we do this at the end of our podcast, is we always talk about how do you show up? How do our listeners show up? Okay, you're showing up. You you showed up in a big way. By the way, I didn't tell our listeners yet, like how many nonprofits did you found like three or four you mentioned one but i think in the bio there's like she actually founded a new one while she was on this call while she was on the call i mean just you talk about using every opportunity to (laughs) just like every waking moment you are doing something that is important and impactful so you have nonprofits you're thinking about ways to shape and change the community you've written a compelling book and you work every day you navigate your days thinking about this work So you show up. How do our listeners show up? What would be one thing around this work or the idea of justice? What would you ask them to do that could help them in their journey? You know, one of the first things is just tuning in to this podcast. You know, I always encourage people, number one, to educate themselves about the issue whether it's through documentaries on Netflix, like Ava DuVernay's 13th or Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy movie and share that, you know, with people in their circles, share what they learn with people in their circles. The second thing I encourage people to do is to reach out to local organizations in your area doing the work. I promise you they're there, you know, and as a local organization having a couple of nonprofits, you know, we're often overlooked. Mm. national ones, you know, but we're, we're doing the work just as well. And we're within arm's reach 
of people in our community. So definitely reach out to local grassroots organizations in your area who, who are doing the work, seeing how you can contribute your resources, whether it's your time, your money, your connections. And the most important thing right now with that, the education, the showing up through your local orgs, in this time we're in is voting. Mm. I can't even emphasize enough. That 100 to 1 sentencing ratio that I talked about was reduced under President Obama to 18 to 1. It should be 1 to 1. Mm. President Obama pushed to 1 to 1. But there was a compromise and it was 18 to 1. But the law that was implemented in the first place was set into place by Congress. People who we vote for. The same thing with state and local legislators. The laws in our states and communities are put into place by elected officials. Mm. And so... The people have the power showing up to vote for candidates who whose interests in criminal justice are aligned with yours. But it doesn't stop there. Right. Because we have to ensure we're holding them accountable yeah. after the fact. And so those would be the top three things I would say, you know, educating yourself through documentaries or books, showing up to your local grassroots to see how you can get involved. And number three, exercising your constitutional right to vote. Amen. That's yeah. a great that's a heck of a way to land the plane. And before we let you go, Brittany, this is, we really have been humbled by you, you spending this time with us. And we're just, like Jess said, we're thankful for you. We're thankful for the work that you do. We're thankful for the perseverance in which you do it and the grace in which you do it. How can our listeners who are hearing this and want to go deeper, want to pick up a copy of your book and, and dive more deeply into Sharonda's story and to face this and to their first step of that show moment is to educate themselves by reading A Knock at Midnight. How do they do that? Where, where do they go? When when is that coming out? Could you give a little bit more information about that before we let you hop off? Yes, the book, A Knock at Midnight, A Story of Hope, Justice, and Freedom, was recently released on September the 8th. And it is available on Amazon, of course, at your local bookstores, Barnes & Noble, your local indie bookstores as well. If you prefer to listen, it's available on Audible. And yeah, I would definitely encourage people to pick up a copy of, of my book, A Knock at Midnight, and really... See past those numbers. I think you would be surprised, you know, to see just the amount of genius we're locking up behind bars. Mm-hmm. And definitely follow our work with the Buried Alive Project on Instagram at Buried Alive Project is our ad or our website, buriedaliveproject.org. You know, we definitely try to post our wins and you'll see, you know, people literally having their lives saved through the work that we're doing. And that gives me great joy. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Brittany, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. All right, go back and do the good work better than everybody else. Start your little next nonprofit girl. And and I hope you're going to write another book because this uh, you clearly have a voice. So uh, yeah, use that gift. Use that thank gift. You. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you all so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for your time. Bye. All right, well... That was good. That was so good. And I, it was like, it was kind of like a short and sweet version of one of our podcasts. It was like, get in there, do this work. This is what we need to do to show up. And like, let's stop talking about it. Like, right. Be about it. what did you think? Oh yeah. There's so much I love about, I mean, she, she was an amazing storyteller and I, I can't wait to read the, the whole book now that it, it's available. Encourage our listeners to pick up a copy too. But yeah, I mean, she she summarized it so well. She made made these stats come to life. I mean, that phrase she said early on of we have to look past the numbers to the heartbeats. Yeah, that is that is it. That is so powerful. I feel like we resonate with that yeah. so much when what we're trying to do with with just you know reimagining what justice looks like. Even the way she talked about you know her client survivorship 
gives her hope because in w- the grace and dignity in which they carry out a sentence, like the ability to carry a sentence with dignity. It almost feels full circle to what I talked about earlier when we first started the podcast, like this documentary talking about how much social media is dehumanizing or making it possible for us to dehumanize each other. There was so much humanity soaked into that conversation. And you could tell she's working to humanize people who are being dehumanized because of a, of a mistake, right? She's not saying that they have made mistakes like criminal records. Yes, yes, that's not up for argument, but their humanity should not be taken away from them in the process, right? And then not only that, we shouldn't take away justice either. And proportional sentencing, this idea that we need laws to be retroactive, there's there's a lot to unpack there, but those are the things that, that stood out to me. What about you? Yeah, um, there's so much in the headlines today, and we can talk about this next week, about where it just doesn't make sense, the severity of sentencing and its correlation with race. It just, it does, it's illogical in many ways. I, I, I love the, she ended with this comment around um, the amount of genius that's being locked up behind bars. If we would mm. just think about that, mm. we just think about the amount of genius around a mistake and think about your own lives and mistakes that we've made and just the disproportionality around that sentencing. It's like, you know, none of us are exempt here, mm. i.e., you know, if we get wrapped up in the system, they say it's real hard. Once you're tied up, it's really hard to untangle yourself out of the system. And some of it is just bad timing, bad luck, one mistake, and your whole life is ruined. And yet that genius is still there, but it's untapped and we'll never see it. And that is tragic. It's really, really tragic. It is. And it's convicting because, I mean, the reason that sentence gives me pause, Jess, is because I've been conditioned not to see genius behind bars. Yeah, that's when right. I think about who's behind bars, I've been conditioned not to see that yeah. there are geniuses in there. There are there geniuses who are human beings that have been incarcerated. They're not, we use terms that can be dehumanizing, right? You I know, mean, we talk about even, even with slavery, right? I mean, just a tangential conversation, but the difference between saying a slave and an enslaved person, right? Right. Or a person who was enslaved leading with their humanity instead of defining them by the worst things they'd ever did. You know, there you go. There's a Brian Stevenson quote. It's been a little while, a couple episodes. There it is. But like one last thing that she pointed out about her mom was saying, Hey, my mom needed treatment. Yeah. Not a sentence. Yeah. Needed treatment. Mm-hmm. And I mean, she wasn't a perfect person. She made mistakes, but like, are we misdiagnosing and are we setting up the police to, you know, not, not have the proper tools and what we're asking them to do. And that is that part of why we're, we're seeing some of what we're seeing here is just the misdiagnosis or the misapplication of punishment where do we care about getting to the root? Do we care about really transforming people? And the difference between transform and reform, I love that she did that. There, there's so there's so much there. And I, I'm just so grateful to, to be able to, to have those kind of conversations because it, she made us think, and I think her book will do that even more so. So probably our show up moment is follow those three steps. And maybe step one should be picking up her book along with several others, you know, but educate yourself, share what you're learning with your networks, right? Lean in, have those conversations, get plugged in locally. You know, those grassroots organizations, if you're looking for some grassroots organizations to get plugged into, look no further than recitynetwork.org. So many organizations here, if you're listening here in Durham or the Triangle area here in North Carolina, and then go vote. Go vote. vote Because these laws get passed by humans that we elect into office. Yes. Absentee or show up with your mask on. Either way, do it. Do what you got to do. Do what you got to do. Fuel up on CMOS beforehand. If you need that. CMOS and stop playing. That's right. (laughs) You'll be super focused, apparently. Uh, all right. Next show moment will be the discount code for the CMOS that we are now uh, sponsors yeah. for. Or that's sponsoring us. That's Goodness, what, what have we become? Okay, Jess, 
until <laughs> next time, friend. This was this was always a- so much fun and so informative. Yes. Thank you, friend. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Just. In the spirit of sharing, if you like what you've heard, tell a friend about the show and give us a five-star rating and review. Many thanks to DJ P-Dog and producer Low Key for producing the music for our show. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Voter suppression isn't new. This is part and parcel of who we are as America. So these things aren't esoteric for me. This is stuff that I feel every single day. 11 out of the 13 southern states implemented voter suppression bills. Can't move forward unless we truly tell the truth and reckon with the past.